0: In this episode, we speak with Matthew Brockman, managing partner at HG, a leading global software and services investment firm. The firm was recognized by GrowthCap as one of the top 25 private equity firms of 2022. HG has over $55 billion in total funds under management and is supported by a team of over 280 professionals across Europe and North America, with offices in London, Munich, New York, Paris, and San Francisco. Matthew is managing partner chair of the investment committees, and a member of the board at HG. He focuses on the day-to-day leadership of the firm and also the Genesis and Mercury fund teams. Matthew joined HG in 2010 and originally led the development of the software-focused Mercury funds, acting across many of the investments in that fund, including Allocate, IntelliFlow, and SQL Business Solutions. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the Managing Partner of GrowthCap and the Executive Chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Matthew, so great to chat with you today. Thanks for taking the time.
1: RJ, thank you for having me on. As I said to you briefly, I'm a, a regular listener to your podcast. I actually, uh, really enjoy it when I'm in the gym.
0: Appreciate that. So, where I'd like to start off with is the current market environment. It's October sixth, two thousand twenty-two. You know, likely when we release this, it'll be a bit after. But at the current moment, we have macro conditions that has everyone really thinking hard about business today and where industries are headed. Since you focus on the software market, can you tell us how you think the current macro conditions might impact software companies and software
1: businesses? I guess I would start by differentiating there, RJ, between perhaps the kind of software that we at HD do. You know, software covers a lot of types of companies. If I think about real sort of high growth, traditionally unprofitable, almost discontinuous innovation level of software you know we're going to horizontal applications going to change a whole bunch of global applications for work or for consumers i mean that market obviously we rated hugely in the early part of 2022 and kind of risk appetite for very sustained capital investment over very long periods of time feels like you know that was very much end of a cycle right that cycle had probably been compounding for maybe 15 years and you kind of saw a very significant. Loss of risk appetite, I guess, for continuing to back those kind of companies, at least for a period of time, or at least that's what the current valuations tell you. If I think about the kind of investments that we're trying to do, which is mature businesses, existing products, existing functions that serve, you know, a workflow that serve an application, it's remarkably resilient. I mean, our portfolio of companies—we have about fifty. If I think about the COVID period where we saw GDP drop, you know, by by you know double digits in most economies, and economies are locked down our revenue still grow every month on average through that period. So it's not that we're completely unaffected by a macro environment. That, that would be the wrong thing to say. But the level of resilience of these kind of subscription models, repeat use business cases, products that are used in workflow, it's a, it's, it is a remarkably resilient category when you start heading into the kind of macro environment you're, you're talking about.
0: And you've been an investor for a long time now, decades. And your previous career was with Apex. I'm always interested to know, you know, for folks, and I think you've been at HG now for about a dozen years or so, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always interesting to hear how firms vary from one another. How would you kind of compare Apex or other tech focused or, you know, large private equity firms? How do they compare to HG?
1: I would put HG in a group, a very small group actually, of very focused investors. If I think about firms that focus on software and in particularly the pieces of software a little bit like i just described you know application software workflow mature companies sort of investing you know you've got less than a handful less than five firms between kind of europe and the us which are you know just very very deep so significant resources a lot of people covering the end markets in incredible depth and then with the operational expertise around how do you develop these companies How do you think about developing sales organizations you know development product data science pricing architecture so that i think is the differential when i think about where hg sits and what we're investing in and aspiring to it's that incredible level of focus and intellectual property building which is really a quite different strategy i think fundamentally from a broader investor you know if you're a broader private equity investor you're in different verticals, you've got different themes you're trying to back. It it really does end up being quite a different sort of style of of strategy, but also style and culture of organizational sort of behavior.
0: Yeah. And it seems that HG has really developed into the leading software investor in Europe. And I'm not sure if that was the case 10, 20 years ago. So there's been dramatic strides that HG has made. Is it that focused What are the other attributes of hg that have enabled it to become what it is today
1: i mean your observation is correct we've grown really materially in terms of our sort of market space and our activity as well as you know measures like funds under management and so on we made a decision i would say going back probably six to eight years ago now which is having scale in your market, having scale in what you do is a source of competitive advantage. And so like a software company, if you be in a relatively discreet niche as a, as a product, but if you're the number one, you've got more resources, more money to spend on development, more money to spend on your customers, you've got better insight. And so we were seeing that in our portfolio. And so we thought about how does that apply to a maturing private equity industry? How do we think about being ahead of where the next stages of private equity goes to? And so our belief was, if we became the biggest player in Europe, and so we had the greatest number of people the greatest resources the greatest capability the most activity by having multiple funds acting at different size ranges in the industry that would give us better ip it would give us better knowledge it would give us better networks it would build connectivity within our portfolio and that had a sort of compounding effect and as a private business you know we're a business owned by its shareholders we have no constraint in terms of our ability to invest in our business to grow our business and so we are very heavily invested in the size of our company, the number of people, the expertise, the ideas, the focus over the last, I would say, I mean, it's been going for 20 years, but particularly in the last five to eight years, very, very heavy investment and continuing to grow. And I think you now see it in terms of of what you said in terms of our market positioning, particularly in Europe.
0: Well, you've obviously been successful in recruiting the right talent. How have you gone about finding the right talent and ensuring they stay at HG?
1: Great question. It's very flattering to be a place that people come to source talent, but it's also slightly frightening in its own way. I would highlight two things, really. Like any investment firm or, or professional services firm, people join because they think about growth. They think about growth of themselves. They think about growth of the firm. And I think by having an ambition to be a big player, to scale up business, it's attracted people who see that presenting opportunity for them. You know, they can work on a platform, they can learn, they can develop skills, but they're in an environment which is growing, which means they can aspire to helping us lead certain verticals in terms of software applications, lead funds, lead geographies, and so on. So that kind of development of growth, I think, is just absolutely crucial if you're going to run one of these professional services companies to attract the very best people. I would say the second element is sort of culture, the famous culture strategy for lunch, right? If you don't focus on who are your customer, who are the pension funds that give you the money, what do they care about, how do you serve them? and make that intrinsic into what your business stands for and why it does then it's really hard to get people to kind of absorb being in an investment business right we're in the ultimate intangible business our our people join they go up and down the elevator we have to give them something that says here's who you serve and here's who your customer is and those pension funds that you're generating returns for here's what they care about and we have invested a lot of effort into allowing even our most junior people to access the state pension plans in the US working for firefighters working for teachers you know who are those people what do they care about and how does that custom group really influence and care about what you do
0: i found it really impressive that you've put at the forefront your foundation and kind of the work you do in esg and diversity because that is important to this younger generation that's coming up in the investment industry can you talk a little bit more about your efforts for the benefit of our audience in, in the ESG area?
1: I guess it matters to all of us, right? But I think particularly, as you say, RJ, the generation coming through who are grown up in, you know, in, a, in a very connected world, who see very heavy pressures on the environment, on equality and so on, I think they need to believe, and they do believe, that when they're investing and, and the job of investing which is this sort of slightly intangible thing we do right we sort of generate returns you know what is that you know my, my daughter says to me what do you actually do for a living and it's quite hard to explain ultimately the capital we invest is other people's money it's other people's dollars that sits in a pension fund a pension fund serving let's say teachers or, or firefighters has got a 20 30-year liability and if we can invest that capital responsibly by building long-term companies sustainable companies Companies that will ultimately provide employment and grow, it just makes them feel better about themselves and they've got a better role in society. And we found that enormously energizing, honestly, for our people as they think about kind of why they work as hard as they do and why we have to compete as hard as we do to be as successful as we are. And, you know, we're in a very competitive industry, so we have to get up every day and work really, really hard. But it gives people, again, a kind of a reason, an outlet, you know, start with why, right? It it gives you something to really start to anchor into. And so it's been a, it has been a huge focus to try and make that as visible and tangible as possible for our people and and for them to access it.
0: And I'm sure there's some influence or overlay when CEOs also look at your firm and what you stand for, what you're about. But tell us a little bit about the other aspects of HG and, and how you help companies, you know, when a CEO is looking for A capital provider a capital partner and they're deciding between hg and the other highly reputable firms out there what is it about hg that makes you stand out in their eyes
1: i think you end up coming back to probably two items if you're buying hg in a bit of commerce as your investor if you're selecting us and it often is a selection right i mean ultimately even in the most aggressive auction ultimately somebody is making a decision about where this is likely to to end people are essentially buying two things. They're buying capability, competence, right? So do these people understand my end market? Do they understand the dynamics of my end market? Do they understand how to build a software company? Are they operationally minded? Do they understand what it's like to run a sales organization? So we don't have a bunch of people who are executives in our business that have run these companies on the investment side, but we have an awful lot of infrastructure on our portfolio side and just an awareness in our business of what it really takes to grow a business at, you know, 15, 20% a year for 10 years. How much investment I can have to make in my sales organization, my product, my customer success, my delivery, and how do I sustain that? And so that kind of capability expertise piece, I think, is just an enormous focus and differentiator. The second piece, I think, and it's a little bit where you started the question, RJ, which is around organizational culture. You know, how do you conduct yourself? How much respect do you have for the people running the companies? How are you there to help and serve them? How do you set that be the tone with which you adopt? You know, there's, there's a ranges under which we compete. And we're always trying to take a tone of we're very respectful of people running the companies. We're very respectful of how they build those companies. Doesn't mean we don't have opinions. Doesn't mean we won't try and contribute. Doesn't mean we can bring a lot to the table. But it's a partnership business. And it's how you engage and deliver on that that we think is, again, when we talk to CEOs and we take the feedback. Tell us, why did you decide to work with us? Why did you decide HG was a good investor for you? Those are the themes that sort of perennially come back. And if I hear that one of those themes isn't coming back or we made a mistake, then I go back and go, okay, well, why did that happen? Like, how did we not send that sense or that organizational sort of shape? Because obviously we did something which is sort of not aligned with our values. Can you
0: give us a sense of your activity in the U.S.? Obviously, you're very big in Europe. How does your U.S. activity look today? And what areas, I guess, are there certain geographies that you like in the U.S.?
1: So we've always built businesses in particular, if you think about our strategy, we focus a lot on application software in what I would call white collar jobs, you know, lawyers, tax accountants, medical profession and so on. So we see a lot of businesses which have been built serving white collar roles, which end up a number of them being transatlantic, right? So if you're serving English language law, you're highly likely to have customers that are based in you know London and in New York and across English language commercial markets. And so, having ability to properly scale these businesses on both sides of the Atlantic is we felt very, very important. Which is why we put a bigger effort on how we can scale those kind of businesses over time. As we think about them, what we're doing in the US, which at this moment is about probably about a third of our portfolio, is got a North American headquarters. It's again, it's trying to be systematic about where we have a reason to play. So you know, the US does not lack software buyout investors, right? I don't see a shortage of those in the market. So what do we have to bring? We have to bring expertise and differentiation and we do that in those vertical markets we think about what's happening in the office of the cfo we think about how law firms are using productivity tools we think about how the tax filing market is happening for corporate you know and try and really build a kind of thesis almost top down that allows us then to, to plug in individual investments in those themes across funds which are you know small medium and large so the very biggest funds doing you know five billion dollar deals and the smaller fund doing 200 million deals and playing up and down that size spectrum
0: Going back to some of the capabilities, I and mean, I, I bet this kind of depends on which fund you're investing out of, but what's the level of involvement in the company? Like, is there in some cases daily interaction or weekly interaction? Just curious as to that level of the touch points with your portfolio companies.
1: It's almost certainly weekly and it can be frequently daily. So if we are a new investor in a company and we know at the time we're investing that, say, product scalability is a key question or the building out of a sales organization is a key question or key opportunity for us to scale the business a lot of our portfolio organization which is you know very scaled, we have a lot of people in our business focused on those functional roles in a software company they are often working three or four days of their week with that one company in the first six months of an investment period 12 months even sometimes to influence the outcome so by having a group of effective ctos in our business or cro's chief revenue officers or data scientists by having those people available we can put them into projects into companies for a three six nine month period often early in the investment makes a huge impact so their involvement is daily i mean they're in the companies working with the leadership of the company to to affect an outcome the investor then the kind of proverbial deal guy is more remote at that stage, right? They're, they're, they're on the board, they're involved, they're doing things. But obviously, what we're really trying to do at that point is get the operational impact to drive the value creation, the kind of equity value creation.
0: So, we're coming up on time, and I typically like to ask a couple uh, closing questions. But before I do that, I did have a, a question related to your ability to ascend to the position you're at. You know, there's not many investment executives out there at your level managing the kind of money you're managing and having. I'd say, the reach into certain markets, there's probably various aspects about your business that you've had to think about along the way in order to show to folks that you understand this business and you know how to grow it and you have a vision for it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think about most? What's most important to you?
1: I think a lot about scalability. So if I think about, and and this has been sort of my role in HG for the last few years, which is we have this plan to grow, we have this plan to get market position, as we talked about earlier, in terms of sort of felt scale mattered. If we were gonna do that, that wasn't just the question of hiring a bunch of people to do investments and giving them a bunch of capital and sort of asking them to go and produce deals. So we had to start with an investment strategy, which was very defined. We had to make people very clear what it is, the kind of companies we wanted to invest in, where we would find them, give them a bunch of tools, get a lot of systems and infrastructure and processes around How do we find the right kind of investments? How do we calibrate them? How do we build an organization which can help execute? I think in our business, we have at least sort of 50 separate roles around, you know, how's the deal get executed, which legal, tax, antitrust, all the portfolio stuff I talked to you about RJ, all the marketing, the development. It's a business, right? We have 300 more people we have over 100 billion of enterprise value in our portfolio, right? We're running a very, very large software group when you think about the scale of what we're doing. And if you're going to build that kind of business, you really got to think about the infrastructure and the scalability and and then the talent processes that you mentioned earlier on. You know, how do we attract and retain not only good investors, but leaders over time and develop those people so they can continue to grow the company over the fullness? So I'd say there's an awful lot in there and we'll run out of time, but there's, you know, that I think is at the heart of really trying to think that through.
0: Just a follow-up question to that is, Presumably, there's a lot of information coming at you about whether or not your vision is the correct vision or your strategy is the correct strategy. How do you know when to adjust course?
1: Great question. So I think we're always trading a line between being focused and sort of consistent with what we do. But then thinking about how do you make adjustments based on what's happening in the market and so on. So I think you need this long-term plan that goes through generations, right? It's not a kind of three-year play. It's a kind of five, 10, 15-year view of what you're ultimately going to go build. And then you're constantly looking for how do I course correct or how do I learn? So we obviously have a lot of LPs that give us a lot of feedback. We're very, very encouraging of people basically coming back and saying, can you please tell us what we didn't do well? Can you please tell us what you're seeing? We spend a lot of time looking at peers we spend a lot of time looking at peers that aren't in the software investing part of our ecosystem but they might be investing in another part they might be might be hedge funds but what are they doing and so we're almost i was gonna say shameless probably is shameless around how do i go and think about what somebody else is doing that's incrementally better than we're doing and then being really humble and saying all right we're just not doing that very well right it's not as good as it should be and i think one of the things that trips up companies like ours that have had a good run is they get Arrogant and they get overconfident. You see people, you know, they're on, they're in the media and they're making these big statements. That I think is always a slight warning sign, right? That's when people are getting beyond themselves a bit. It's almost, you know, now's the time to be going, okay, what, what have I got wrong? You know, we're, as you said earlier, we're into a significant shift in the market. What errors could we have made in the last two, three years while everything was going up to the right that we now need to go and go? Okay, how do we start doing things which wasn't consistent with the world we're in now, even though it's all still good software and it's still sensible companies? What can we go and learn from?
0: Excellent. Okay. Last two questions. Can you tell us about a book that has had a profound impact on you or you can provide a book recommendation?
1: I think about the books where you think, okay, I read that 10, 15, 20 years ago, and I still remember takeaways from it. And I guess probably the one I pull out is is some of the Jim Collins stuff, right? I mean, that's 20 years old now from memory. I think I'm, I'm probably showing my age. The thing that actually, and we talk about this internally, that one of the ideas that Jim Connors come up with around that good to great period was this flywheel, right? The flywheel phenomenon, the flywheel effect, and this idea of, you know, it's like when suddenly you know, a new tennis player emerges, you know, the most recent tennis player or Olympian, and everyone goes, wow, they suddenly burst onto the scene. And it's like, well, no, they burst on the scene after 10 or 15 years of hard work, right? It, it, this flywheel of like every year that you just put incrementally more energy behind what you do, and actually as the wheel starts to turn, you get better. And actually, the, the energy builds on itself. And so this flywheel effect, I think, is in that Jim Collins book. And we talk a lot internally around the flywheel, the combination of scale, and also this effect of kind of real focus and real discipline about what you do, mixed with massive amounts of entrepreneurial energy. So direct all that entrepreneurial energy against a consistent set of activities and the flywheel really starts to fly. And I just think that's a wonderful when you sort of know it's happening and you can feel it. That's when you know the thing's winning, right? You 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 just things are getting easier for you, not harder for you.
0: Okay. And person you admire most or favorite leader?
1: I'm gonna have to call out Warren Buffett, and I know that's probably very standard sort of response. And it's elements around, you know, his investment skills, the longevity of what he's done, the way he's built his business and so on, and very, very impressive. But there's also just some the way he conducts himself, right? The humbleness, the gravitas, it's not flashy, it's thoughtful. He surrounds himself with highly capable people. And there's just some wonderful advice in there. I, I was thinking the other day about, I remember reading it years ago about this whole idea. I think it was, you know, it's the blank calendar, right? That, you know, if you go through Warren Buffett's calendar, there's nothing in it. And we all want to feel super busy. And we all want to feel like we're doing lots of things because we've not got time in the day and we can't spare a minute and all these people are relying on us. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I'm not trying to say I'm, I'm, I'm innocent of that. I absolutely suffer from that problem. But then you look at what, it talks about and saying, no, the thing you should be doing is just thinking, right? And just giving yourself space and not rushing to fires and being shown that you're kind of the only person who can put a fire out, right? If you're not building a system that can put the fire out, you're kind of not doing this very well. And I love that idea of just a practical idea of like find ways in which you, you can clear your diary, right? My diary tomorrow is clear. I have a Friday where I am not gonna go and put some fires out. I'm just gonna go and try and think about what I should be worried about, which is you know the bigger picture.
0: I think it's a great answer. I think it's the first time someone said Warren Buffett. So appreciate that and your your thoughts around why. Well, Matthew, I want to thank you again for spending the time with us. I know our audience will find this very insightful.
1: Thank you, RJ. Honestly, a pleasure. I, I listen to you all the time and I'm delighted to be invited on. Thank you. Thank you.